All right, folks, we're back here. I'm joined with uh, Kara Moriarty, the uh, president and CEO of the Alaska Oil and Gas Association. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, glad, glad to have you here. Um, so we'll talk about AOGA here in a bit, but first I want to go back and talk about how you came to Alaska. And I didn't realize this, but you actually worked in the North Slope, right? Yeah, so I have been in Alaska for over 20 years and came here right out of college from a small Catholic school that I graduated from in my home state of South Dakota. Who, South Dakota? Yeah. Do you ever watch Bill Maher? No. He always talks about, we need, we need to have one Dakota. Because <laughs> <laughs> he gets mad because the smaller states have two senators, you know, and, uh, and so bigger states have two as well. So he's like, we need to have one Dakota. One Dakota. <laughs> well, actually, they probably should have divided it Eastern Dakota and Western Dakota. So the... Uh, both states have very differences depending on which mm-hmm. side of the Missouri River you're on. I have a friend from North Dakota. And <laughs> yeah. His parents are kind of like farmers and he's just very different growing, you know, youth yeah. than most people. Yeah. So I grew up on a cattle ranch in the middle of nowhere in western South Dakota. I went to a one room country school, grades K through eight. And uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Little house on the prairie. The whole, my grandfather went to the same school building that I went to. So. Yeah, anyway, so went to the small high school and graduated from the small Catholic college. And um, we had a friend, my college best friend and I had a friend who had graduated a year before, a couple years ahead of us. And he and his wife came to teach school. So I have a elementary education degree. That's my original college background. And I taught first and second grade in a village called Akasuk, which is 50 miles south of Barrow or now Uktiavik. Um, and so I worked for the North Slope Borough School District the school year of 96 to 97. So that's how I got to Alaska. So for a lot of people who come, I know some friends that I've met over the years that have come and taught in rural Alaska. They come from like a bigger urban city. It's big transition. Sometimes they don't last very long. But in your case, I mean, you grew up in a small, very cold probably. So it probably wasn't horribly different than somebody who grew up in LA or Chicago or yeah that's a really good point in fact I remember flying in because of course it's fly-in only Um, so I remember flying into the village that fall and the tundra looked just like the prairie to me Uh, so it was very familiar in that sense and uh, now the river froze a little sooner (laughs) on the North Slope borough than than it does back in South Dakota um, and the Inupiat culture is very similar to the Sioux Indian culture. And I grew up really close to the Cheyenne Indian Reservation. So from that standpoint, I didn't have that level of culture shock. Um, but it was still very remote. And it was 96. And there was no texting. There was no FaceTime with your family like there is now. There was no Facebook or social media. Uh-huh. I mean, we the North Slope Borough had amazing technology for the schools. So I had 15 first and second graders in the mid-90s. And we had three computers in the classroom. Each student had their own email address. I took my Alaska history uh, course for my Alaska teaching certificate via video conference. Do you remember, in- do you, remember you took it with or no? Paul, uh, was it UA or no, it was through Illislavic oh. College. So I have a history degree from UA. I took a lot of classes with Stephen Haycock. So, no, I didn't. Uh, so we could take it to a video conference with the North Slope Borough would set that up. So, in there was 
in 96. Must have been old school. Well, but it was high tech for back then. I mean, think about where you were in technology in in 96. Uh, So anyway, so it was a great experience. Um, What's really fun now is those little first and second graders 20-some years ago. Several of them are my friends on Facebook now. Are some of them working in the oil industry, I bet? Uh, One does. And... um, I think he might have been a third, fourth, fifth grader, but one of the kids from the school does. Um, but some of them still live in the village. One's an amazing baker. She's very talented, and so it's really fun. Were you, you, were you there by yourself, or were you married at that point? Oh, no. I was a single. So, si- single Kara. Single Kara, yeah. Well, not a lot yeah. of bars and yeah. places so, to go. <laughs> yeah, like so my college, my college best friend was in Barrow, and she was a high school teacher there. And so I would travel to Barrow to see her, and that's actually how I met my husband. So my husband was a pilot for Cape Smythe, and which was a, a bush operator back then, a bush pilot operation. And so he was one of the pilots that we started hanging out with. And I left after that school year, and I went back home, and I got an opportunity to go work for John Thune in D.C., so uh, he was a senator, right? He is a senator. He still is a senator. Yeah. So. so he was a congressman. So he had just been elected to Congress, and he's originally from a town about an hour from where I grew up. And long story short, I went to a DC from Bar or from Akasuk, and so loved it and had a great time. But kept in touch with this bush pilot. Was he from Alaska or is he from No, Jerry's else? originally from Yakima, Washington, but came up here the day after he graduated with his aviation degree and has been here ever since. He flies for Alaska now, right? He does. I think I've I think I saw him once cuz I was on an airplane and there was somebody that you know that Yeah. was like talking and I said, "Oh, it's Karis' husband. Hello." Yeah. Yeah, my favorite Alaska Airlines pilot. Right. So, um yeah, so we um I moved to Fairbanks in 98 and we got married in 99. And we lived in Fairbanks for about seven years. I, oh, I didn't know you lived in Fairbanks. Yeah. You like so. the cold, don't you? No. <laughs> it just Living must like me. Places. Yeah, it just must like me. So I worked at the University Museum and was a reading tutor part-time. And the museum job became full-time first. And then that led to me working for Gary Wilkin. So I was a Juno staffer for two sessions in 2000, 2001. So I'm dating myself a little bit. But oh, so, well, you were there during the the, the other the other big uh, f- fiscal the yes other big fiscal crisis that was when nine dollar oil that was when they had the um, Andrew, advisory vote Andrew Halcrow gave me the, this I still have it it's a big uh, binder and it's called the fiscal policy caucus yes from the house uh-huh. and I I read through it and I mean basically it's identical to what's talked a lot about of, right now a lot of similarities you know, yes the, the, so different... I was I was helping work the capital budget at nine dollar oil the session of two thousand. So, not, not a lot of money back then, huh? Very small capital budget. We were able to make our federal match and a little bit more, and that was about it. So, But I, it was a really amazing experience because um, my job was to meet with all the departments to talk about their capital budget request and really nail down to what is the highest priority for you because you know we're not going to be able to fund everything in your request, so let's figure out what is truly the highest priority what can we get matching funds for? Where can we find partnerships with private public partnerships to make the state's capital dollars go funder or go farther? So it was a really amazing. Was um, he the co-chair of finance, or he he wasn't the co-chair, um, but I was assigned to help the co-chair, which was John Torgerson at the time, to help him with the capital budget. So so when you went to Juno, because I went to Juno last 
time for mm-hmm. the first time for the first time being there for the session and what I kind of found was I'm, I'm not usually you probably know me I'm not very uncomfortable normally around people or places but it took me a while to really kind of get it's like a very overwhelming place because you don't know anybody or you know people but you don't know really where anything is and you kind of feel very did you feel very out of, I felt very out of place for a while it took me a long time to kind of feel comfortable and it like was I, you know and again this was almost 20 years ago now uh or it will be 20 when we get to the next session so you know yeah i was i didn't know very many people i'd only been in fairbanks for a year and a half so i didn't really even know all of the fairbanks delegation or the staffers from fairbanks um and it was clear i was one of the newbies you know i was one of the new staffers in the building and but by march i mean people are so friendly and i think it was a little different Back then, I don't see this as much where, um, you know, some of my dearest friends worked for the other side. I mean, I was working for a Republican, Mm -hmm. but some of my dearest friends uh, worked for the Democrat from Fairbanks, you know, because we all worked together on the common issue of what's best for Fairbanks. And it didn't really matter, you know, party affiliation. And there was a lot of, um, you know, and some of my dearest friends today, it's a lot like it was almost like a college experience because some of my dearest friends today in Alaska are still uh, those core friends that I made in that very intense time working you know, long hours, weekends, uh, early in the morning, late at night. There's just something about that type of environment that creates some really deep bonds. And um, Alaska is made up of really great people. And so I've been really blessed. But I got tired of the move back and forth from because we had a condo in Fairbanks that we couldn't really rent, so all of a sudden you're stuck with a mortgage and a rent in Juneau, and just the move back and forth, um, it just got too much for me. Um, And this prairie girl, I love Southeast, but I don't like living there, because I like to be able to get in my car and drive and be able to see. It it is a weird feeling in Juneau. You can't can't really get out. Yeah. You're stuck unless you get on an airplane. And I felt claustrophobic you know in between these two mountain ranges in Juneau and so anyway long story short at the age of 27 um, I became the president and CEO of the Fairbanks Chamber of Commerce so I ran the Fairbanks Chamber from 2001 to 2005 and moved to Anchorage uh, the spring of 05 and I've been with AOGA ever since well I moved here in 04 so right right before you yeah but I came from New Mexico so yeah you you got got a long time on me in Alaska yeah, well, I, I figure my, my year in rural Alaska should give me a couple more years under my belt. But. That's a, you, yeah, I think that's a lot of street cred. I mean, I, yeah. I, the only, I, I had a honey bucket. The, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. The only place I've ever lived besides Anchorage in Alaska was I lived in Skagway for, a, well, I, I guess Juneau last time, but I lived in Skagway for a summer. I had a store there, like a small store oh, from I had a business back in 08. And fun. that was a whole different experience compared to Anchorage or right or Fairbanks right. yeah and we you know and I love Fairbanks um it, I still feel it's sort of my Alaska hometown um but at the same time Jerry had gotten hired with Alaska he was based here so we had a condo in Girdwood and a condo in Fairbanks and all that was great until our first son came along and we needed to be in one household mm-hmm. so I started looking for jobs down here and they had a position open at Aoga, and so I was high, uh, interviewed by Judy Brady uh, years ago and so I went to work for Judy and then Marilyn and then I've just had various positions throughout my 14 and a half years and I've been the head of the association since 2012. 
So did you, before you got with Aoga, I mean, you were the Chamber of Commerce, but did you have any, did you work directly like in oil and gas or did you kind of? No. So, I mean, my, my first experience to oil and gas was in the legislature and that was right around and right after the BP Arco merger. So oh, I went was... to work in Juneau in January 1st of 20, 2000. And so that sort of was my introduction to any oil and gas was working the in, in Juneau. Even though my boss, Gary, wasn't on resources, but he was on finance. So, you know, any finance major... Finance everything. So. Right. Eventually, all bills almost all bills are going to have some type of fiscal note. So they're going to have to go through the finance committee. Um, but then, so I had a little introduction to oil and gas then. And then, of course, for Fairbanks, running the Fairbanks chamber, you're sort of the jack of all trades and master of none. Because the Fairbanks economy is really interesting because it's about 20% university-related, 20% mining. Because we had, I mean, I, Fort I was... Fort Knox. Fort Knox. And, I mean, I was at Pogo before there was a road and before the mine was sanctioned. You flew I mean, out there. flew out there on a tour. Governor Murkowski at the time, I was part of the chamber. So it was just this big open land. I mean, and they were saying, and this is where this is going to be, and this is where that's going to be, and you had to try to visualize it. So that was my first introduction to Pogo. Um, but then you've got the military, you've got the university, you've got mining, you have oil and gas, Obviously, with the pipeline going right through the North Star Borough, uh, Alieska has a major presence there, the refineries that are there in North Pole. So that was sort of introduction, and then everything else. And so it was interesting when I came to Aoga, I naively thought that I would be bored because at the chamber, a lot, 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 lot going on. Well, yeah, and you're kind of, like I said, you're the jack of all trades and master of none. You know, you kind of have your hands and a little bit of everything. You know, one day I'm out doing, you know, Airman of the Year awards uh, out at Ileson, and the next day I'm getting a briefing by the chancellor, and then it may not have been the next day, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was very, it was a little bit of everything. And I thought, oh. No day is, no day is probably the same, right? Yeah, no day was the same. And then, oh. Now I'm just going to do one industry? Man, that's going to be really boring. Or so I thought. And little that I know is that, you know that picture of an iceberg where you, mm-hmm. where it's the yeah. water? And you really what you see at the top from the boat is really only the tip. But really there's this huge, massive amount underneath the water that you don't see. Well, that was my initial knowledge of the oil and gas industry. What I really knew was really only the tip of the iceberg. And what I've come to know and appreciate is no day is the same at Aoga. I'm constantly learning. Uh, so the educator in me loves that. Um, I'm surrounded by amazingly talented, intelligent people, way smarter than me. So that's intriguing um, and uh, intellectually stimulating uh, to be around people smarter than yourself. And I would so, say the, the smartest person in the room is person that surrounds himself with smarter people <laughs> well a lot, lot, lot of these people and especially in politics they try to surround themselves with like you know yes men or something and yes, they so, always feel like oh i'm you know i'm so smart look at me everybody agrees with me yeah and and the industry is just so vast and ever-changing um and I, so it's fascinating i worked for over a year recently in 2018 uh, when i got back from australia i worked in for an oil field services company and i had run for office a couple times and worked in it and a lot of our clients were oil and gas so i 
probably knew more than the average person, but working, you know, directly in the industry and going to the mm-hmm. slope and being on a rig. I mean, it's just, it's like, you're totally right about, there's like this little tip of what most people kind of see in the news or read. And then there's like right. this whole other big company versus small company and right. who, all the different who, fields. and Right. And who knew the industry had biologists on staff to mm-hmm. study wildlife uh, migration and patterns so that you can adapt and make sure that your activities are not disruptive. Who knew you needed, you know, um, amazing HR professionals or accountants or attorneys or the folks all working on the slope, the men and women that actually turn the uh, wrenches. And you're, on a, and you're on a rig and, you know, there, there, there's 20, 30 people on the rig and, you know, they could be from seven or eight companies all right. doing different things, wearing different coverall, you know, with their company's logo. So it's a huge, it's not just the oil company, a lot of people talk about the oil companies, but there's right. hundreds of support companies that do have all kinds of things. That well, and, and frankly, in our, in our jobs numbers sort of bear that out. Um, because when you look at our direct jobs in the oil and gas industry compared to other industries like fishing, fishing has a lot more direct jobs. But we have a much greater impact overall on the economy because our jobs create um, a magnitude of indirect jobs, the contractors that you worked for, or like you worked for, and then all of that spending because uh, then generates an, another level of economic impact and jobs. So, you know, all told, and this has been very consistent since the early 2000s, whether it's ICER at the university or the McDowell Group or other independent economic analysis has have shown that the oil and gas industry generates about one-third of all jobs in Alaska mm-hmm. and about a third of the wages. So even though our direct jobs are only right around like 5,000, so that doesn't, you know, that looks like a lot less compared to some of the other industries, like I mentioned. Um, But again, because they're uh, high paying, they generate a lot of other indirect support. We need a strong contracting uh, workforce to be able to do what we do. Um, And so it's, it's just really an honor to be able to represent the the state's largest private sector industry. So AOGA, the Alaska Oil and Gas Association, they're comprised of how many? How many? Num- we have fourteen member companies, and, and they're so, all producers, right? Not all producers. Uh, so we represent the majority of companies who hold a lease. Oh, so, okay, that's right, leases. So so they're either producing, they're exploring. We also uh, represent the refineries in Alaska. So there are three in-state refineries in the state of Alaska. It's like Petrostar? Is that- so Petrostar has two refineries, one in North Pole and one in Valdez. And then um, Marathon now uh, operates the one in Nikiski. So, and then we have the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. So we have both in the industry, it's called upstream, the people who are getting it up uh-huh. out of the ground, midstream, the people who are transporting it. So Alieska across the country is known as a midstream company. And then downstream, which is the refineries, the companies that take that product and turn it into something to be able to use, um, you know, in your homes or in your cars um, or in your jets. So most of the refineries in Alaska either make gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, or even uh, materials like asphalt for road construction. So like any trade organization or any any board or you know commission i mean is there ever when there's meetings people probably always don't agree on everything right there's probably some disagreements or is it does so it ever we, get like intense 
Well, we represent a very diverse uh, set of companies, and not every oil company is the same. And so they do have different interests, but we have a standard um, where we don't weigh in on issues that may put one company at a competitive disadvantage over the other. So it is very rare for us to not have unanimous consent on an issue, um, really rare, um, because we, we know that, they, that the companies are partners and competitors, and so they know when they walk into the AOGA board meeting that they're focused on the 95% plus that we all agree on. And yes. then they debate and negotiate on that remaining 4 to 5% outside our boardroom. Yeah, it's kind of a, what I noticed when I was working for the industry. It's interesting because a lot of times two companies or three companies will be working together on something, like a lease, or they'll be, you mm-hmm. know, but then at the same time they're competing over here. So it's kind of a weird deal where they're like, Right, all working together here, but then over here they're very competitive. Right, and 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 that's and and that's no different than anywhere else in the globe. I mean, so I don't want Alaskans to think that oh, they only you know they only disagree on issues in Alaska. Um, you look at any global oil well, news, and you know one day you know Repsol's partnering with this company, and then the next day in another country they're partnering with that company. You know they're getting into leases with each other, and then they're bidding against each other. Um, in a different state. Yeah, so, I like going to the lease sales. Yeah, lease those sales are, are pretty fun. Those are fun. Yeah. So when did AOGA start? So AOGA's got to start um, actually before Prudhoe Bay. So we were started as an organization in 1966, and we started um, after the Cook Inlet production started. So the companies in Alaska would have a common voice, and we actually started out as a chapter of the Western Oil and Gas Petroleum Association, um, which is now the Western States Petroleum Association, or WISPA. And in the mid-'80s, um, after Prudhoe Bay and after, you know, Alaska really kind of grew up, the industry sort of grew up then after the pipeline started, uh, we created our – we kind of broke off from them, and we are incorporated with the state in the mid-'80s. But we as AOGA have been around since 1966, Wow, so it's over fifty years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had our fiftieth anniversary a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I'm the fifth. I'm the fifth uh, president. So this, uh, you've been there since twenty president since twenty twelve, right? Correct. So this uh, BP thing, I mean, that's the big news. Everybody's talking about. Yeah, it's super historic. I mean, BP was one of our charter companies in nineteen sixty six. You said you were there when the BP Arco merger happened. Correct. So you've been. Kind of the full circle. <laughs> yeah. Well, it started out, of course, as Sohio in, in Alaska. BP's original heritage was with Sohio. I think probably if, if I look back at my charter uh, of incorporation, it's probably Sohio that was the one of the original members in 1966. Shell was an original member, Chevron, Exxon. Um, so, you know, we've had those legacy companies as members for 53 years and counting. And so, yeah, it's a pretty historic uh, decision, Um, uh, a little bit bittersweet. Of course, you never want to see a company like BP leave Alaska, a legacy company, obviously very committed to their people, committed to their communities. But the good news for me, as I I look at the things that I've seen over the last 14-plus years at Ioga, is there's a company wanting to spend money in Alaska. They have faith in Alaska. They want to reinvest in Alaska and Hillcorp. It's it's much different. You know, people have asked me, oh, it must have been a terribly sad day for you. 
well, not really sad. Again, bittersweet because BP's such a great company mm-hmm. and there's great people who work there and they're my friends. And um, But it's much it's much different than when Shell left Alaska in 2015. That was a much harder day for me because there was no company coming in to backfill that billion dollar plus that they were spending every how, year. How much did they spend? They spent a lot, right? Yeah, I mean, Shell averaged a billion dollars a year. Yeah, I know. Plus. I know. I know some people. I mean, Megan Baldino now she's with BP, but she yeah. was at Shell. Right, and um, and there were a lot of great people like that. Then there were. They either had to go find a different job, like Meg, I think, went to work for GCI. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were, I mean, pretty soon it came down to one person in Alaska, and now he's not even here anymore. And so they either Same found thing different. With, uh, Stead Oil. Yeah. And, and, and Repsol, you know, they, they're back in Alaska with their investment with Oil Search, but they had an office presence here for a while. But then when oil prices crashed, they focused on their expansion in Canada. Well, my good friend, you know, Trino Federico. He oh, was, right. Yeah, he was with Repsol. Yeah. He was initially with, with Eni, and then he um, came with Repsol, and he was there for a while. And he, um, when they pulled out, you know, he went to Houston, mm-hmm. and now he's actually recently moved back to Spain. Oh, has he? With Repsol. But oh, okay. I was, uh, my other friend, uh, got a buddy, Fernando, who was, was a drilling engineer, and he played on my soccer team. And yeah. he got, you know, when they left, he went to... Where's he working now? Um, Algeria. Oh, month yeah. on month off. Yeah. And so yeah. So you know that was a much harder day uh, for me professionally because that money was leaving and there was no there was no company coming in to take over those leases at that time. And so, well, you know we're going to be in this transition over the next six to twelve months. Um, you know, Hillcorp has been an amazing company. They joined Aoga shortly after they arrived. Um, in 2011, 2012 timeframe. And so I've had the opportunity of being on the platforms in Cook Inlet and I actually got to go to North Star last fall. Oh, really? Um, which is super cool, oh, offshore. Not a lot of people uh, go there. No, um, you know, the only only oil being produced in federal waters right now, mm-hmm. so that was great. And uh, Endicott and Milne and just the vibe when you walk into the camp, uh, they have great culture, great motivated staff um I've, I've been to a couple of employee briefings and it's like a family you know they're hey did you close on that house hey did you you know how are your kids doing in school where did where did they you know did, is your kid over his broken leg yet i mean it's just a very uh camaraderie amongst amongst the hill court folks yeah, i think and it's so, it's wild uh the, see, i tell people this, they don't believe me but they have their bonus program they do and last time it's like a five-year target and if they reach it, they all get the bonus. And last time, everybody got $100,000, which is like crazy. I mean, if you were there less than five years, it was prorated. But sure. that's like, people don't believe me when I tell them that. You know, that's, Yeah, they're, that's they're, very, they're very focused on accountability and responsibility. And they're all focused on how can we uh, get maximize our assets for the benefit of our employees. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, for, and it's a privately held company. And so... It, it becomes more personal that way. And uh, they um, committed to safety, uh, you know, and I think it's it's just a, it's, I think that, you know, the transition, you know, lots to be decided and it won't happen overnight. Um, but I think in the end, they're very focused on getting more oil. I think that for every platform and oil field, 
that they have become the operator of since 2012, I think for all but one, maybe, they have been able to increase production. And some of those platforms in Cook Inlet are almost 60 years old. So, I mean, and it's, it's it's not huge volume. It's going from, you know, 900 barrels a day to 1,300 barrels a day, but that's still 400 barrels a day more than what they were producing before. And so they are very focused on um, being as efficient and um, uh, innovative as they can. And so I think, you know, long term for Alaska, this is going to be really good um, because they're not going to just sit on the Prudhoe Bay asset. They are going to be incredibly focused um, because, you know, if their history shows you anything in Alaska, it's that. I mean, you take a look at Milne Point. They they brought moose pad on as an additional pad to go into Milne in almost record time. It was like two years and three or four months. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty from, fast. From sanctioning to production. And um, they, they really uh, enable their people to make decisions at the lowest common denominator. They uh, have a great relationship with the contracting community. So, um, yeah, it, but again... It's going to be a transition. It's going to be a little weird not seeing the BP logo on yeah, every every event and every sport team and every you know uh, in every community. And teacher of the year and the energy center. Yeah. So last thing I want to ask, um, I know you got to run. So what does you know this mean big picture kind of for the future of Alaska forever? It's been Conoco BP Exxon owner of the pipeline and the major operators. Now it's going to be Conoco. Exxon Hillcorp and Hillcorp's um, privately owned company. It's it's uh it's I think the fourth or fifth biggest company, privately held company, oil and gas company in Alaska, but it's still much smaller than Conoco or um, Exxon. What is what, what do you think that means for the future? Is that a big big transition, or is that going to be more or less kind of things as we as we've known it for a long time? I think for the average Alaskan, they're probably not going to notice. I I think if you go back to what you said when you worked on the slope. And you would have 20 to 30 people working in a drill rig with six or seven or eight different logos on their hard hats. Yep. But did they work like they were six or seven or eight different logos, or are they kind of all working as one team to make sure you were safely producing oil out of that rig? Oh, absolutely. It was one, one team. And yeah. So it was one team. And so for Alaskans, we should focus on making sure that we're maximizing this massive amount of resource that Alaska has been richly blessed with. Um, and how do we get more oil in the pipeline? How do we get more production? How do we have that long-term stability? I mean, our mission at Aoga is to advocate for the long-term viability of the oil and gas industry. So for Alaskans, I'm not sure it matters which logo is tied to that barrel of oil in the pipeline. What matters is is that we continue to operate safely and responsibly while maximizing our opportunities to meet the global oil and gas demand. And we didn't. We mentioned Repsol. We didn't talk much about oil search, but with oil search and Hillcorp and some of these Nanashek and these other projects, are I mean, in five or ten years, we could be. It's crazy. They, they estimated the pipeline was supposed to last, I think, thirty or forty years initially, and. Now we're thinking it could be, you know, much, much longer than that. Right. We're, we're production is hovering right around 500,000 barrels a day right now. Of course, the pipeline was built for a maximum capacity of 2.1 million. Um, and you're right. You know, Hillcorp's looking at Liberty. That's about 60, 70,000 barrels a day. 
Conoco now has Nuna, which is about a twenty to twenty five thousand mm-hmm. barrel a day field. They're looking at the Willow Prospect um, on federal land, which is 100 to 120,000 barrels a day. Oil Search in the PICA and Repsol in the PICA unit is another 100 to 120,000 barrels a day. Now, if those four projects, just those four projects alone, they're not all going to come online at the same time, but assume that they come online in the next five to seven to eight years, you could easily see a couple hundred thousand barrels more in the pipeline than we have today. And, and as long as companies like Hillcorp are maintaining um, production in a 40-plus-year-old field like Prudhoe, Conoco's doing the same thing at Caparic uh, and Alpine, um, you know, Alaska has an amazing future, and we haven't even talked about, you know, the coastal plains. So, and Anwar, that's the big, that's, that's the big, yeah. one, that's the big one. That's, yeah. a, that's a whole other podcast, I think. Yeah, that is a whole other podcast. And I'll, I'm happy to come back and talk about it, but... Um, but I just, uh, you know, I appreciate your time. I very much appreciate your support always for the industry, Jeff, and your good questions and your uh, focus on, on the people that make up the industry. And so I just appreciate the oh, time. I appreciate that. I mean, I've you know, worked in, in IT for a long time, and it wasn't in the oil and gas industry, but I, I saw all the business we had and all the work we got, and mm-hmm. it's going back years, and then just having a lot of friends and seeing the not just the um, the jobs, but the, the really good paying jobs that right. allows people to raise families and buy houses and... Well, and you know, you know that our industry would be nothing without the great people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have amazing people that have great pride in working in this petroleum industry. And I just get to be blessed enough to represent them. Well, Kara, it's great seeing you. Yeah, I'm thanks. sure we'll see you around. I see you all the time. So yeah. thanks, thanks for coming again. in. And we'll do another one down the road about Anwar. Sounds like a plan. Okay, folks, uh, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast with me, let me know. And we'll talk to you next time. Landline.